Good morning, Soma. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors, one of the Soma pastors. Uh, my primary uh, residence, my, my, my primary uh, place I minister each week is Soma Northwest. Uh, my wife, Deb, who's up here in the front with me, um, we were part of this church for the first two years that it existed, so obviously I know many of you. I, I spoke here a few weeks ago. I'll say the same thing I did then. I'm really excited to see so many people I don't know. Uh, it is a real blessing to be with you guys and to bring you greetings and news from Northwest. I think between our two congregations, it's been a very painful couple of months, honestly, um, with multiple tragedies uh, in our midst, uh, some of the hardest time that I've had in ministry. And if you hang around us very long, you realize we've had a lot of hard times in ministry, and this has been honestly one of the worst. Um, so I want to bring uh, greetings from everybody at Northwest. Um, thank you so much for your encouragement of Brooke and Dave Seibel. We continue to, to grieve corporately the loss of their son. Um, I also want to bring you good news from Steve and Tasia Coyle. Uh, many of you know that uh, SJ, their, their newborn son, was literally taken out of Tasia's arms minutes after he was born and was very much uh, touch and go. And he is still in the NICU, but uh, Tasia is able to be with him all day, every day, and he's nursing, and they're just weaning him off the last of the medication, and he's going to go home soon. And I want to give you the testimony that they gave uh, all of us a few weeks ago. The doctors didn't know what was wrong with him. They didn't know if uh, he was going to make it. Literally, the next thing on the list was lung transplant. Um, So that's how bad it was. And Steve and Tasia called on the church to pray and fast, and we did, and we prayed and we fasted, and literally the next day, after a day of prayer and fasting, his lung capacity had multiplied, his heart had been healed, the doctors were completely confused, he came off the ECMO machine. Yes, it was, it was a literal miracle, and God is good, and he is powerful, and we are so thankful to him. We are so thankful and grateful to him. So I know um, many of you have been praying for SJ and for Steve and Tasia, um, just a couple that we love very dearly. Uh, Tasia works for uh, Young Life in Pike Township, has a really vibrant ministry among middle school girls there. So thank you for your support and continued uh, partnership with us across the city. And I think... One of the real joys that we have from being one family, uh, even though we meet in multiple congregations, and even though the congregations have our own context, the own things we're trying to deal with in our neighborhoods, is that we are united by not only a common uh, vision in the gospel, but in a mutual love. And it's in these worst of times when we really see and really feel that connection. So I want to thank all of you and just tell you your brothers and sisters at Northwest are praying for you, and I'm very thankful for all of you. So um, I'm glad to be able to be with you here this morning and continue to talk about, I think, what collectively we've all been discussing through the beginning of this year, which is the I am statements of Jesus. These are statements that Jesus made in the book of John to declare his identity, his power, his authority as Almighty God. And really, this series finds its roots in the one we did before that, which was the book of Exodus, right? In which Moses saw the burning bush and said, well, God, who should, who should I say sends me? And God says, 
You say, I am who I am. And it was his personal name, his declaration of identity, of purpose that God made. But not only that, it's also an invitation to receive help. And Jesus, in the book of John, makes these same kinds of statements over and over again, telling everyone, without any ambiguity, who he is and what he's about. So when he says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the resurrection. We learn who he is and we are called to receive that help that he offers. They are central to the Apostle John's claim that Jesus is more than a teacher, but he is almighty God himself. And we study these statements at the beginning of this year to anchor us as a community, to help us as a people, identify who we are and what we ought to be about. Because I want to make one thing very clear. We are not a social club. We are not here for our mutual entertainment. The end all and be all of our lives is not what happens this morning. As a church, we, are, we exist to be God's presence, to be Christ's body throughout our lives throughout our cities, our workplaces, our homes, our families. We are called to be his representatives all week long. That is a a seven-day-a-week thing. We come on Sunday mornings for mutual encouragement, to encourage one another on to love and to good deeds, to worship God, to receive encouragement and energy and to reflect that back to our Lord and to praise him. We're not here because this is what it's about. We are not interested in becoming a power organization for political or social things. We are interested in being representatives of God's kingdom who are doing powerful things in the world, who are accomplishing things for the good of our neighborhoods, for the people that we work with and the people that we live around. Jesus is not our president. This is not his country He is our king, we are his subjects, and we live in a rebellious, occupied land that the enemy inhabits. And Jesus makes that clear over and over again in the book of John as he calls us to know who he is. He is not a means to an end. He's not how we get what we want. He is the beginning of and the end of all things. And I'm going to say some things this morning, and I'm going to give you all a warning right now. We're going to do some really hard work. This is the third time now that I've given this sermon, and every single time it has resulted in some really hard conversations, good ones, but really hard ones. So I want you all to stay with me, to hang with me, and if you only remember one thing I say, please let this be the thing and not anything else. Jesus is not how we get what we want. Jesus is what we want. That's the one thing. Above anything else I talk about, anything that confuses you, or offends you, or excites you, or encourages you, please hold to that one thing. He's not how you get what you want. He is what you want. So this morning, we are going to look in John chapter 14. In John chapter 13. So if you have one of the black Bibles, uh, you can find this on page 900. 
Uh, if you do not have a Bible in your home, please take that with you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Um, if you're following along in your own Bible, uh, John 13, 31 is where we're going to start. And this takes place on the last night of Jesus' life. He's already uh, worked his miracles. He said his other I am statements. And now on the last night of his life, he's alone with his best friends, his disciples, and uh, the next day, he's going to go to the cross. So he's sharing with them his last message, the things that he really wants them to know before he leaves. And uh, Judas has just left to betray him. So the, the stakes are now raised. This is, this is as much pressure as has ever existed in the universe is now being poured into this one little upstairs room and a little uh, hut in the Middle East And Jesus says in verse 31, it says, When he had gone out, he, meaning Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, when I shared a few weeks ago, I talked about Isaiah 6 and this concept of God's glory, meaning the physical manifestation of his presence, the weightiness of of the existence of God. And Jesus is saying here, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. He's calling back to this language and he's basically saying, I'm God. That's it. It's me. The weightiness of God. The physical manifestation of God. The way you know God is here. His glory. That's me. I'm that guy. God is making his presence plainly visible through Jesus Christ, and Jesus is telling the disciples that, and they're not going to understand any of it. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. With you. you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is leaving. He is going to die. And as his final message to them, he wants them to know the extent and degree that they have to love each other. Now, be very clear here. He's not saying be nice to each other. He's telling them something that they don't fully understand yet, right? He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. They don't know yet how much he loves them. He hasn't died for them. He hasn't been whipped. There's been no crown of thorns on his head. He hasn't carried any crosses. He's about to. And he's telling them, love each other the way that I loved you. So at this point, I'm sure they're thinking, wow, Jesus was really warm and he's really caring and he met all of our needs and that's what we should do for each other. But he's really saying something much bigger than that, that they're only just about to find out. He goes on in John 15 and he kind of comes back to this idea. He repeats all these lines and he says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He's not being ambiguous. He's not speaking in riddles. When he says, love each other as I have loved you, and everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love each other, he's saying, you're going to have to lay down your lives for one another. 
my, my son Scott uh, made the comment. He said, you know, it's funny that every time Jesus speaks, everybody takes him hyper literally, right? Like in John 6, he's like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You'll have life. And they're all like, ooh, we don't want to do that. And, and everybody takes everything Jesus says hyper literally until he gets to the point where he says, love each other all the way to death. And they're like, what, what he means by that? You know, like, what's he getting at here? He's speaking plainly, un, without any ambiguity, without any confusion at all. He's telling them, you got to love each other all the way. And Peter thinks he's got a bead on what Jesus is talking about. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me now but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Note, that's not what Jesus asked Peter to do. Jesus just asked Peter to love each other as much as he loved them. And Peter's like, yeah, I'll die for you. And Jesus is like, that's not, nobody's asking that of you, Peter. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three, three times. Peter's like, I am all in, Lord. Here am I, send me. And Jesus says, not so much. This is not, you're not wanting to do what I'm asking of you. What you're wanting to do, you can't do. At this point, I think the disciples began to get very worried, very confused, very scared. The thing you have to keep in mind about, about these guys, these are young dudes. John, who's writing this gospel, is probably a teenager, like 15, 16 years old. And he's writing this as an old man, maybe in his 90s. So, you know, this is 75 or 80 years after this has happened. John's an old dude, and he is remembering what it was like hearing Jesus as a teenager. And like the oldest of the disciples probably weren't any more than like 25, 26. These were young, young men. So they didn't have any education. They didn't have any experience in the world. They were all like fishermen. They were all just dumb kids from the sticks following this guy around for three years, believing that he was going to liberate them, believing that he was going to be this king that was going to kick out the Romans and he was going to sit on a big throne and there was going to be a big battle and there would be all this political power and all this glory. They had all these dreams of what this guy was going to do. And he's starting to say things like, I'm going someplace and you can't follow me. And we already know from John 6 that when everybody else left Jesus and he looked at the 12 and he said, you guys going to go too? Peter was like, where are we going to go? We, can't, we don't have any place to go. You're all we've got. And now he's saying, I'm leaving you. And he senses how afraid they are. And he senses the confusion and the anxiety. John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's going to be all right, boys. It's okay. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? Have I ever lied to you, boys? Have I ever told you something that wasn't true before? So if I tell you I'm going to prepare a place for you, you can count on that. Have you ever known me to lie? And if I go prepare a place, 
I will come and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. You know the way to the place where I am going. I'm going to come and get you. I'm the way to the place where you are going. You already know how to get there because you know me, and I'm going to take you. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where we're going. How can we know the way? They are totally lost. He's not seeing any of this. Jesus is trying to tell them, I'm the way. I am how you get to where you want to go. I'm the only one that can take you there. And the disciples, they just don't get it. So Jesus comes out and he makes it plain and expressly clear in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Here it is. Here's the I am statement, right? Here is the I am the self-existent, eternal one. I am God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I am in front of you saying these things. Here's the statement. And he says, I am the way, which means the path, the strategy, the moral principles, the conduit, the teaching. I'm it. I'm all of those things wrapped up together. He says, I am the truth. I'm the way things really are. I am the actual state of events. We love to boil truth down into a series of propositions or a series of facts about things. Truth isn't just a bunch of rules that we make up. Truth is a description of human life illuminated by the light of the world. We know what truth is, not because we got handed a bunch of rules to follow. We know what truth is because Jesus is truth, and we saw how he lived, and he showed us what it was really meant to be like. All the rules, all the statements, all the facts, all of those things don't measure up to the personal truth who is Jesus Christ himself. He juxtaposes himself with liars. In John 8, 44, he talks about people who distort the existence of reality so they can pervert the meaning of reality. He's talking to the Pharisees and he says, you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is truth. He is the opposite of that. He is the opposite of everyone who dwells and deals in falsehoods. When somebody lies perpetually and constantly, they reflect their father, the devil. They don't reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus both provides the meaning for reality. I am the truth. And then in John 1, it says he establishes its existence. He both says how things are supposed to be and then makes them that way. And finally, he says, I am the life. Life, the thing we crave. Victory over our enemy. The undefeatable, undiminishable, animating essence of the universe. He is the enemy of our enemy. And our enemy is death. 
And we here in our community, we know that enemy and we have seen him up close. And he is foul and he is wicked. And he is opposed to everything that is our good. And Jesus says, yeah, but I'm life. I am life. Because he's not how we get to what we want. Jesus is the essence of what we want. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's not steps to be happy. He's not a good teacher. He is not your life coach. He is not your moral example. He is not your co-pilot. He is nothing short of Almighty God making an ownership claim on your destiny. He is the human embodiment of truth itself and the author of life. That is who he is when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Philip hears him say this, and he replies, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Has no concept of what Jesus is talking about. You know, it's funny. Philip says, you know, that will be enough for us. That will sustain us. The only other time this phrase shows up in the book of John is in John 6, when Jesus says to the disciples, hey, why don't you give all these people something to eat? And Philip says, oh, six months' wages would not be enough to feed all these people. Both times, Philip's asking a question about how much is enough. How do we get enough? What will really sustain us? What will really keep us going? He's really concerned with just meeting the bare minimum like, what, what, what's going to be just enough? And Jesus looks at him, and I don't know whether it's exasperation or pity or gentle love. I don't know the tone of voice that Jesus uses. Um, but he says in verse 9, Have I been with you for so long, and you don't know me, Philip? <laughs> Three years, we're walking around together every day. You're eating with me. We're walking the roads together. You're watching me heal people. You're listening to me teach. We're laughing together. We're joking together. We're crying together. We're cold when it's cold. We're hot when it's hot. Three years you've been with me and you don't have any idea who I am yet. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I just told you I am. (laughs) I just told you I am and not for the first time. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus is calling them to a deeper, bigger understanding of who he is. You see, believing in him was not the end of the road. They already believed in him, right? They had already followed him. They, uh, Jesus said in John six twenty nine that the work of God is this, to, to believe in Jesus. And so they had done that work. They believed in him, but they didn't know him. They didn't even know what they were believing in. Jesus would go on to say just a few minutes later in John 17, he would say, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he's just told them, hey, you don't know me yet. You don't really have life yet. 
You believe in me, and that's good, but, you, but there's still more to me that you can know. Because Jesus was not a way to get what they wanted. Jesus was actually what they wanted. Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Come on, Jesus, be the way to get us to God, because God's what we really want. Show us the Father, that will be enough. And Jesus is like, no, I'm the Father. I'm what you're looking for. I am what you want. So, if any of you have ever heard me speak before, you'll know this is usually the point where I ask a question. And the question is, if this is true, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, how should we live? How should this flow out? How should this impact our daily life? And my normal way of applying scripture is pretty simple. I generally take like any command that I find. I'm like, okay, there's your application point. It's not really complicated. If Jesus says do this, I tend to think the point is, okay, we should probably do that. Um, so normally my application points would be very specific and flow directly out of the text. I'm going to take a moment this morning to broaden the application that I'm going to make because I have both a burden and I think a responsibility to speak some prophetic words to the moment that we currently are living in. When I say prophetic words, this is what I mean. A lot of times we think of prophecy as being this like, you know, ah, you know some crazy thing is going to happen in the future. But when you look through the Old Testament, what the prophets usually did was they would take the law, God's law, which is full of blessings and curses, right? He would say, if you obey my commands, worship me only, take care of people, then you will have bountiful crops and safety from your enemies and your kingdom will expand and lots of good things are going to happen. But if you abandon me and you abandon my ways and you exploit widows, orphans, and foreigners and, and completely turn your back on me, then armies, plagues, disease, pestilence, bad things are going to happen. So then the prophets would look around, they'd say, geez, we got a lot of starving orphans and widows out here, and uh, there's a lot of injustice and violence going on, and oh, hey, look, a giant army's coming. It's not rocket science, right? The prophets would take a look at their moment they were in, they would look at God's word, and God would be like, hey, all those things that I said are going to happen, guess what, they're going to happen. So prophecy is a way of taking God's word and applying it to the direct moment in which we live for the purpose of both offering a course correction but also to announce judgment when it's ignored. So for the last couple months, and I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm, I'm going to try to collect myself as best I can. My heart has been deeply grieved by the moment that we find ourselves in, not just as a community, but also as a community within a larger context, that is our uh, city context and our national context. A lot of things have been happening and they churn up on my Facebook page every single day. And I wanna take a moment this morning to talk to those things very directly because they grieve my heart and I know they upset many of us um, some of them we feel very personally. For some of us, these are far off, distant kinds of issues. And some of these things 
are easy to write off as, oh, hey, these are, these are political issues or these are bigger issues. Um, I want to take a moment and acknowledge that, that all the things that I'm going to bring up, and it's not an exhaustive list. I'm just talking to you about where I'm at and what I've seen. <clears throat> they are grieving to me in a way that I want to take a moment for us to talk about them as a community, to open a conversation. We have become not so much as Soma, but uh, Americans in our current day, we've become people that can't talk about anything. We can't talk about anything hard. We can't discuss any of the things that are happening because just talking about them leads to so much friction and so much disagreement that we have lost our ability to reason together. We have lost our ability to try to solve problems together. And I don't want that to be true of us. So be patient with me and listen to what I'm saying. Um, Because I've seen a lot of things come together. In the last few months at Northwest, we've had a major focus on adoption and fostering and the role of safe families. And it's been just both incredibly encouraging, but also deeply convicting and just heart-wrenching to watch how many folks are opening up their hearts and their homes and their lives to displace kids, to um, try to help keep families together. Um, It's been really, really beautiful. And it's it's, it's weighed on me, I think, in a really good way. And I've seen um, the tragedies and the miracles in our own body, especially regarding infants. And those have been profoundly changing for me. And I've seen things in our national moment. Just a few weeks ago, there was a church shooting in which two people were killed. And on my feet, a lot of my brothers and sisters in Christ were celebrating that as if that that was a victory because the shooter was shot and a good guy with a gun killed him. And it was like, yeah, isn't this great? And I was like, no, this is horrible. Like this is two people are dead in a worship service. That's not good. We shouldn't be happy about this. And we see just a never, what seems like at this point an endless war that's drug on on the other side of the world with my own relatives have been involved, and and we now have young men who are fighting in Afghanistan that were never even alive when 9-11 happened. It's been 20 years of war and death, and it's killing me. And I see the murder rate in Indianapolis and the moment that we're in with so many, so many deaths, especially in the African-American community. And some of those deaths occur uh, because of all kinds of different kinds of violence, but Then we see national deaths that have occurred with police shootings, and I just, I see too many dead kids, and I just, it's overwhelming. And we see refugee crises, and we see kids waiting at the border uh, in detention. We see the the Right to Life march that happened. And we think about 45 million abortions since 1970. And we think, I think even how much higher that rate is and has been in the African-American community. And that doesn't even deal with the infant mortality rate in the African-American community, which is more than double that of other racial groups. And my heart is sick. It's sick because I want to be a person of life, and I want us to be a people of life, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're supposed to be pro-Jesus. We're supposed to be in favor of life, but here we are, a people drowning in a culture of death. Our enemy is all around us. Seems like he's surrounding us and overwhelming us. 
So this morning, please, please, please be patient with me. Please be patient because I'm not interested in having a political discussion on this topic, and this is why I say that. And I've been challenged. Other folks have come to me and been like, you said this one's going to be political, but I think it's political. I want you to hear me very closely. Politics is concerned with earthly power and earthly legalities. As a citizen of God's kingdom, I'm concerned with his reign. What the world does is not my concern. I am not here to tell you how wicked everybody out there is. They don't know God. They're sinners. They, of course, it's wicked. I, I don't, how could it be any way else? This morning, I want us to think about us. How do we as a people live? What do we do? Are we people of life? Are we people that are promoting and encouraging life and human flourishing in our community, here, in that where we gather, at the other sites, the Soma sites, in our neighborhoods, in our homes? Are we doing what we're supposed to do? So please, I am not trying to hold the candle up to anybody outside of here. This is about us. I don't also deny that some things that I say will coincide with or contradict things that are happening in the political realm. The gospel does change everything. We're talking about real lives, real people, real things. We live in a day and age where we have two major political parties. I believe both are profoundly corrupt, and they have traded these issues between themselves. And one side's taken half of them, the other side's taken the other half, and they play keep away. So it feels like we can never get what we want. So I'll make a couple of uh, suggestions on how we deal with that at the end. But that is not my point. My goal is the same this morning as it is every time I speak. I just, I care about you. I care about us as a flock, as a people. So I want us to start having conversations. Not everything we talk about this morning, we can all do. You can't solve every problem in the world. You can't solve every problem in Indianapolis. You can't even solve every problem in your own life. (laughs) Right? But we can collectively all be thinking about these things and encouraging each other on these things. So I want to ask this morning, what does it mean for us to be pro-Jesus people, to be pro-life people, people who find our identity and meaning and the source of life and the author of life? What does it even mean to be pro-Jesus in a world that celebrates death? First thing, It's just first in order. It's not first because it's more important than anything else. Being pro-life has to mean more to us. Not less to us, but more to us than just the legality of abortion. And this is what I mean by that. There were abortions in America before Roe v. Wade. There were millions of them. And they were horrible tragedies. They were a darkness and a blight on our society before Roe v. Wade. Last week, Vice President Pence tweeted out that the abortion rate is lower now than it was when Roe v. Wade was enacted. Good. My goal has to be bigger than just a legal issue. That is not to say that I think the legality of abortion doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. A couple people have asked me if that was what I was saying, and I'm not saying that. I think laws have a purpose to point us to morality, and it is better for any country to have moral laws than immoral laws. But what I am saying is the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade tomorrow, and we would still have abortions, and it would still be a culture of death, and we would still have 
women put into positions where they believe that their best option is to abort a pregnancy. And so I want to look at some of those underlying causes because those are things we can do something about. Honestly, I, there's not very much that the couple dozen people in this room are going to do to change the legality of abortion in America, regardless of what anybody tells you. It's, it's a lot bigger than, than us. But what we can do is within our own community, within this church, we can be the kind of place where the idea that you would want to abort a child would never cross the mind of any woman in our community, of any woman that we came across. Because the truth is, the causes, the underlying causes that are driving abortion are largely economic. Yes, there's, there's a degree to which we have to be people who value children and community. And the rest of the world at large doesn't do that, but we can be. We can be people that say, as a general cultural practice, our people, we value family. We value children, regardless of what the rest of the world does. We support and we help each other because we know having babies is hard. And raising babies is harder. We can be people who support crisis pregnancy centers. Those are incredibly important that provide immediate care options so that women realize there are other choices but we also have to be the kind of people who are supporting one another economically, that there not be need in our community, that we know enough about both one another's needs and that we're open enough about our own needs, that when there are economic needs that would, in other places in the world, cause a woman to consider abortion, in our community, that never even crosses anybody's mind because they know help is there. We be the kind of people who find ways to support family leave for each other. I'm not talking about the political idea of family leave or whether you should vote or not vote for candidates who support family leave. But we have to give each other space. My gosh, the, the, the lack of maternity leave for women in most jobs is shocking. And peop, there's real, people feel real pressures and consequences. We have to help each other eliminate that. Some of the major reasons for abortion are things that in our community should never exist. For example, among unmarried women, one of the major causes for abortion is a belief that their family does not support them. That should not be true of us. We should not be the kind of people whose daughters are afraid to tell us that something's wrong or that they need help. Our physical daughters or our spiritual daughters. So, Men, if you have kids that are grown, that this is an old, they're old enough to have this issue, men and women, it is your responsibility to love your kids and ha let them have an open enough environment so that when things happen, because things happen, they're not so afraid of us that they feel like they're better off killing their child than telling us the truth. That's something we can do. One of the major causes of abortion are women who already have multiple kids who feel they cannot economically support another child. So, men in your 30s, men who have multiple kids, have responsible conversations with your wife. How many kids can we realistically afford? Have real conversations. Don't just think you can keep doing whatever you want, keep getting her pregnant, keep having more kids, and then not support them because that creates an environment that everywhere else in the world leads to abortions, but it shouldn't be true of us. 
Young men in your 20s, a major cause of abortion is young women who feel that they can't economically support their child, so go get a job. Go get a job. Work hard. I shouldn't have to say this, but I do. Make sure you, if you are a newly married man, be aggressive in finding employment. Don't put extra stress on your wife who feels like she has to choose between earning a living and having this child because, again, there's not that much maternity leave because you're not out looking actively for work because that's what happens out in the world and it leads to abortions. Men who are not married, parents of boys, parents of girls, abortion happens because women do not have partners at all in many cases. So if you're raising young men or you are a young man who is not married, you have to be respectful and responsible of the women in your life. Do not go out and think, oh, well, as long as I'm not a baby daddy, it's all good. You don't want to be an abortion daddy either. And again, I don't know what the rest of the world is doing. I don't care. I know who we are and what we ought to be doing. We ought to be people of life. We ought to be people who are addressing one of the major causes of abortion, which is sexual violence. We cannot be a community that allows sexual violence against women to continue unabated, that does not hold people accountable, that lets wolves hide and prey on young girls and young boys. We have to be a community that rejects that, that calls it out when we see, when we see it. We have to be a safe place so that when women have been sexually assaulted, they know they can come and talk to their MC leaders or their pastors. And you know what? That creates a burden on all of us to love one another as Christ loves us because you know what? It's really hard to take a woman to the ER to get a rape kit check. That takes something out of you. Not just the time, it takes something emotionally. But in our community, in our house, that's the kind of people that we have to be. A people that... People feel free of judgment and fear. I want to see abortion clinics close. I believe they're butcher shops. I really do. I think they're a great evil, and I want to see them close. I want to see them go out of business because there's not economic justification for them to even stay open. Because whether they're legal or whether they're illegal, I want to be a people of life, and I at least want us to be a place that exudes life. Being pro-life, being pro-Jesus must mean loving and caring for children after they are born. We talked about adoption, fostering safe families. These are amazing things. They're not right for everybody. They're not a fad. They're not something you pick up lightly because you think you should. They are a calling. And we have to not only have people in our midst willing to adopt and foster. We as a church have to be the kind of place where kids who have been adopted and fostering feel safe to come. Where we support people who are engaged in those activities. Where we go the extra mile, even when we're not called to do it, that we're making an environment where it's possible. We should be working to improve prenatal care because we want to see healthy children born. Trap. I don't need to tell you guys about miscarriage and death. We know it's a tragedy. I don't need to say that here. Surely not. We in our community have to make sure we are providing 
good, healthy care for women in need. It means supporting and helping the stranger and the alien, refugees and immigrants. We cannot solve immigration in America. We can't even begin to even want to. But we can do something in our neighborhood. We can do something to care for children that would otherwise be in cages. Being pro-life, being pro-Jesus must mean loving and caring for adults too. It means we cannot just blanket accept a trillion dollars a year of military spending and 20-year wars. We can't just be like, yeah, that's great. We're all for that. That doesn't even make sense to me. It means that we as a people reject firearms as wish fulfillment. I am not talking about whether if you're a hunter, I'm not talking about if you want a, a gun and a safe to protect your home. That's not what we're talking about. But you guys know, you turn on the news, we saw what happened down in Kentucky where a bunch of folks, and I'm calling this out because I see believers that are my friends that would say otherwise, I am pro-life, I'm the most pro-life, pro-lifer in the pro-life pantheon of pro-life. But, man, I really hope the government invades and comes and takes my guns because I can't wait to go call a duty on some cops. Same mouth saying both statements. We can't be that kind of people. We can't be the kind of people that just brazenly embrace death. We can't be part of the culture of death and pro-life at the same time. Because being pro-life should be pro-Jesus. We have to understand the flaws and be people who work to create uh, communities that are not incarcerating African-American young men at ridiculous rates for minor drug offenses. Because you know what happens when a bunch of young men get put into prison? You know what happens to their wives and their girlfriends? You create a culture of abortion, and we have a holocaust of dead African-American babies. And it's been our policing that's done it as much as anything else. So we, as people, as our community, have to be people who are understanding this, providing support for women whose men have been put away. These things aren't and shouldn't be political, and I am sorry if you feel like they are. I really am. If I've not explained myself clearly, I apologize. These are all things that we can do that should flow naturally out of our love for Jesus, and you can't do them all. Right? This isn't a checklist. I'm not saying here's 30 things to drop on you. But as a community, we can have this conversation. We can talk about these things. We can say, how are we people that are pro-life in a holistic and complete way? We have let these things become political because we're more interested in our own power and our own influence than we are in him and his kingdom. So if we don't do these things for earthly power, and our primary concern isn't legalities but life, what does this mean? How then should we live? These are my suggestions. Number one, be pro-Jesus. Be pro-life. Don't just be anti-something. Don't just be anti-abortion. It's not enough. Don't think, hey, they overturned Roe v. Wade. I guess my work here is done. I don't care about abortion now. That doesn't even make sense. We can't be those people. We have to have a holistic understanding of how and why you value human flourishing. Don't get discouraged. God and his kingdom will prevail. These are dark times. 
A culture of death encroaches around us, and we feel it in our own homes, in our own lives, in our own families, and we get overwhelmed with it. But we serve the author of life. We serve the king of life. He has defeated death. Don't be discouraged. Here's my political statement. This is what I'm going to tell you for politics. I do not know who you should vote for in any election, and I do not want to tell you who to vote for. But this I do tell you as someone who loves you and someone who's charged with taking care of you. Don't be anyone's tool. Our political parties are corrupt, and they will divvy up these issues. And some of you will hear some of these things I've talked about and be like, that's a right issue. And some of you will hear some of them be, well, you sounds like a leftist. Listen, don't let them split you up down the middle. If you have a candidate or a representative that claims to be pro-life, hold their feet to the fire for being pro-life. Don't let someone just get away with saying, oh, well, I'm against abortion. We have political power, whether we want it or not, whether we seek it or not. It's not the end all and be all of what we are, but I'm not going to pretend it doesn't exist. And if we start changing the way we live, it will have impact. And people will ask for our input. That's just what's going to happen. So as it happens, hold people accountable to a holistic understanding of life. So if your elective representative or the person you're considering voting for is on the right and they say, hey, I'm pro-life, hold, hold them to it. Hold them to supporting contraception for women so that it prevents abortion. Hold them to not uh, embracing a, a wave of incarceration. Hold people accountable to these things. If your chosen politician or your, the politician they chose for you is on the left and they say abortion is health care, you say, no, it's not. It's murder. Hold both sides accountable. These are real things. The left and the right are pretty much equally complicit in 20 years of war, so it doesn't matter which side you're for. Don't be a tool. The fact is, the world has tried to divide Christians along racial lines, and they've taken evangelical Christians, and they basically, if you're an African-American evangelical, you're going to vote one way. If you're a white evangelical, you're going to vote another way. Shame on us. Shame on us all. Hold people accountable to truly being pro-life and pro-Jesus. And when they're not, don't be surprised because they're interested in their own thing and their own kingdom. We want to affect as much good as we can, but that's not why we're here. That's not our primary goal. So remember your king and his mission. Don't get caught up in trying to, to transform politically this city or this country. I hope it happens. I pray for it to happen. I pray for our influence to bear good fruit. I pray for wise leadership and not foolish leadership. But if I wanted my life's mission to be that, I'd be doing very different things with my life and my time. I have a king, and that king has a mission. I am part of a community, and that community has a mission. And I want the good for my city so desperately. But it's not everything. And I'm not willing to sacrifice the things that God asks me for just to get that. Because... Last thing, we have to follow Jesus' commandment to love each other. There it is. I told you, ultimately, it's going to come right out of the text. He says, love each other as I have loved you. To the same extent, lay your lives down for each other. Because you know what? Stopping abortions, sexual violence, mass incarceration, these things are huge things. And Politicians love to make them about policy, but at the end of the day, they're going to have to do with us loving each other really well. Stepping into the worst of times, stepping into the darkest of moments.
being real and honest with each other about what we really need. And if we do that, we will flourish. Our king will bless us. He will be with us. We will be his representatives. And our influence over the community will grow because people will come to us to find life. Because they'll look at us and they'll be like, oh, they look like Jesus. And Jesus isn't the way to get to what we want. Jesus is what we want. Jesus is what we want. So we need to be pro-Jesus, pro-life. We come to communion and we celebrate his death. And we celebrate his death because we know that when his body was broken and his blood was poured out, it was broken for us and it was poured out for us. And his death became life to us. And then he trampled death. He stepped on the serpent's head. He rose again on the third day. And so we can celebrate death knowing it's a defeated enemy and a broken enemy. And that's what we do each week when we take communion. Not because it's magic, but because remembering Jesus is powerful and it brings us life. Pray with me. Sorry, I want to say one more thing because I forgot to say this. This is important. Women... On two specific issues, I want you to know. Number one, if you have been the victim of sexual violence, I, I want you to know that this is a safe place, that there are people that you can talk to that you will get help. You won't be the first one. You're not the only one. Lots of other women in our community have experienced sexual violence, and those that have managed to say something uh, to their leaders, to their pastors have received help. And I want you to know that that's safe. Second, if abortion is part of your story, if you've aborted a child or you've contributed to an abortion, that also is covered by the body and the blood of Jesus. Guilt and shame, especially in evangelical communities where people feel like um, they'll be ostracized and judged. That's a real thing. And I want to encourage you that that's not what you're going to find here because every single one of us is desperately flawed and wicked and broken. We're all people of death. We're all corpses until Jesus finds us. So I want to say that just in case anybody hears or feels in any way um, that they need someone to pray or be with them. In fact, uh, uh, during communion, Deb, if you'll go around the corner, just there'll be people to pray with you and, and Julie Landrum also. Just know that we really do love you. And we need our community to be a place of healing and help. That goes for men too. I know many of us have done things that have contributed to this. And we need the blood of Jesus too. All right, let's pray. Jesus, Lord God, thank you for being the way. Thank you for coming back and getting us. Thank you for saving us and loving us and transforming us. Thank you for rescuing us when we were lost. Help us to be people that love you, that are for you, and that are serious about loving each other all the way to the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
You're too big forever, and you're too wise for a mistake. You are a mighty God, perfect in all your ways. You were here before my first breath, and you'll be here. When nothing else is left, you are a mighty God forever and always. Oh, you loved me in spite of my flaws. You hold me close in the midst of it all, a present help when I am in I'm grateful that you won't give up on me Cause you love me When no one else would And you kept me When no one else could Thank you for being God Thank you for being God Thank you for being God Say you're too big forever and you're too wise for mistakes you are a mighty God perfect in all your ways you were here before my first breath and you'll be here when nothing else is left you are a mighty God Forever and always, oh, you loved me. In spite of my flaws, you hold me close. In the midst of it all, a present help. When I am in need, and I'm grateful that you won't give up on me. Because you love me. When no one else would, and you kept me. When no one else could. Thank you for being God. 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 You're worthy. And I'm grateful. You're worthy. And I'm grateful. You're worthy. I'm grateful. You're worthy. And I'm grateful. You're too big. Forever in your two eyes 
for mistakes. You are a mighty God. We're going to stay right there. You are a mighty God. Yes, God. You are a mighty God. Does anybody believe that today? You are a mighty God. Come on, from your heart, sing it to the Lord. You are a mighty God. You're not singing to me or for me. You are a mighty God. You're singing to the Almighty God. You are a mighty God. Come on, let's lift one voice and make him believe it. You are a mighty God. Yes, you are. You are. You are a mighty God. Yes, God. Say you. You are a mighty God. Perfect in all your ways, you are here. Before my first breath, and you'll be here. When nothing else is left, you are a mighty God. Forever and always. Read with me our giving liturgy. And the underlying portion. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We'll now pass baskets and as we do, I'll make a few announcements here. Um, first of which is to just uh, point you towards connect cards. If we can connect you uh, or if you just haven't connected to this point with an MC, with serving, with just any ways that we can connect in the church, uh, please fill it out and drop it on the uh, brown box. I was talking with Dante in the back just after the sermon. He was just making the mention of just like wanting to really push uh, conversations towards this. If you're someone who's just like, man, like this, uh, you know, hits me in a place or this is controversial or this is difficult or whatever it is, uh, a good context to be having this conversation is in missional community, is in family, is in people that are continuing to wrestle with the scriptures and applying them to uh, our lives and applying them to being people of life and the kingdom of life. And so, um, yeah, missional community, if you're not a part of it, um, we always say it's like you're missing a big part of who we are as a church. Because um, it's, as Nate mentioned, it's not primarily about this moment on Sunday mornings. This moment on Sunday mornings is a time where we're encouraging together as a community, um, but it's about um, a life lived in the kingdom of God. Um, and so, um, with that, uh, also we have uh, 412 is an event coming up this coming Saturday. Uh, it is for uh, attenders and members and, and just our visitors of downtown. Uh, it's happening at Soma Midtown, but it is for our congregation specifically. We're hosting it there. Our members and guests are going to be just sharing uh, different topics on spiritual formation and how they are intentionally forming themselves in the image of Jesus. So we'll be dealing with uh, topics like reading scripture and actually just interpreting it and not just getting it from a podcast, but actually interpreting through the spirit and the mind of Christ that you possess. Uh, and uh, things like youth ministry in our city and in the urban context, which is a passion of a number of people in our, con- in our congregation. So there'll be a panel discussion on that, uh, sharing the gospel in a postmodern world. And so uh, lots of good uh, content as well as just a great way to support and be with each other, one another uh, on this coming Saturday. Again, it's happening at Soma Midtown. Uh, please register, somebody.com register so we can get food because there is a meal provided for that as well. Um, and so, yeah, with that, let me send you out with our benediction from Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all 